If you have a Bible with you, please open it to Galatians chapter 6. And we are going to be at the very end of the book of Galatians today. We have come to the end now of Paul's letter to the Galatians. And I pray and hope that though it's six fairly short chapters, that this has been a useful time of worship for you as we have come and opened the book of Galatians and studied it for several months now. And I I honestly pray that these sermons and the working of the word in your life has done many things for you. I hope that it has increased your devotion to Christ our Savior, that it has increased your appreciation and your knowledge of the gospel, of what it is, of how to love God, that it has increased your love both for what Christ has done and for God himself. As we come to the end, I I have a pull in me, though I won't do this, to start all over again. Not simply because I love the book, but because I I have grown considerably in my understanding and my knowledge of the gospel and and of what Paul means by this. I feel like I could could honestly do a much better job the second time through, but you'll have to wait a decade or so. Maybe we'll come back to it, so you never know. We are finishing it today, and we are finishing it with Paul's words. Look with me, if you will, in chapter 6 beginning to read in verse 11. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even of those who are circumcised, excuse me, for even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. Far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus, the grace of our Lord Christ Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. This is the word of our God. Paul is summing up his own book here in these last several verses, and that is what we will be doing today as well. And he ends with, I think, two primary goals. So if we were to sort of conceptualize this, we could go to the book of Matthew and to the words of Jesus in Matthew 7, beginning in verse 13 through 14, where Jesus says that, We are to enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. But the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Being that we are meant to walk a narrow road, we are warned then of dangers on the left and warned of dangers on the right. As Paul, or excuse me, as God instructs even Joshua, and make sure that the commandments of the law, you, you don't leave them either on the right-hand side or the left-hand side, but obey everything that I've commanded you. As we, as we come to the letter of Paul, we're going to find that there are two kind of difficulties baked into everything that's happening in Galatia. Everything can be boiled down to these two primary problems. The first, friends, don't pretend to be lovely in God's eyes. Don't pretend to be lovely in God's eyes. There are many things in this world that I find lovely. I find my children and I find my wife lovely. I adore them. They have many beautiful qualities that I seek out. This is why I married her in the first place. Now, as for why she married me, 
lack of judgment would be on the top of that list, but not for me. Like, I adore her. I think that she is lovely. And you are wrong if you make the mistake that God looks at you the same way that I look at my wife. If you think that God loves you because you have something inherent in you that would draw him to you, if you think that God loves you because he looks down and he sees some sort of special quality in who you are, something lovely in you, then you are mistaken. You do not have any beautiful qualities that God desires. And your failures are not something that you can simply overcome. You, you can't look at your deficiencies in the mirror and decide that you are somehow going to overwhelm those deficiencies by doing good works or by being a different kind of person. There's nothing that makes God look down at you and say things like, I must go find them and make them mine. I must attach myself to them so that I can make a covenant with them so that I can be their God and they can be my people because they're such good people, because they're so lovely, they're so beautiful, they're so wonderful. In the end, this is the final problem of legalism. The thinking that you can do enough good things to make God love you, to make God find you appealing, or to make yourself lovely enough for God. This is exactly what legalism does. But it's the exact same thing all kinds of idolatry does. It's the idea that if you cover up your warts with enough makeup, if you cover up yourself with enough good things, that God won't be able to see the problems that lurk underneath. Some people think that God desires them simply because he's created them. He is creator over all things. We just got done praising him for his work and creation. And some people think that because God has created them, that they are the perfect little creation of God, and therefore he dotes on them. That isn't the case. God's making of us is likened quite often to the making of a potter, a pot. And sometimes those pots are smashed. Some people think that God desires them simply because they're unique. They're their own little snowflake. And they indeed do have unique characteristics and they have unique qualities, but the question is whether or not that draws God to them. It does not. Some people think that God desires them because it's his job. It's what he is supposed to do. He's God, after all. He's supposed to dote over us. He's supposed to love us. He's supposed to be kind to us. Or simply because they're sincere. They come to God and they say, I honestly want to know you. And they sincerely try to figure out what this God is like. Whatever the reason might be, they think that there is something inherent in them, some quality they have, something they do that makes them appealing to God. Sometimes this looks like legalism and people earning his favor. Sometimes it's just people thinking that they are worthy of his favor. It's precisely this kind of thinking that Paul accuses these agitators of engaging in. Notice what he says here in verse 12. It's those who want to make a good showing in the flesh. They literally want to make their face good. They want to put the best thing forward that they can. They want to make themselves appear to be good before God in their flesh, in what they do and how they act and who they are, something inherent in them. They are trying to clean themselves up to make a good presentation of themselves before God. It's like how you would, on a special occasion, go out and get dressed up for something. For some of you, that's going to be putting on the best t-shirt that you can find. For others, it'll be a little bit fancier. Sometimes you'll, you'll try to wear the best suit you can. You'll fix your hair. You'll shave if that's your deal. You'll trim your beard if that's your deal. You'll just let it grow if that's your deal. You'll put on makeup. You'll do everything you can to get yourself 
ready. This is not the midnight trip to Walmart to buy diapers, right? This, this is not like stumbling out of your house in pajamas on an emergency. This is getting an award, graduating. You are, you are going in for a job interview. There's an anniversary dinner. There's something of importance that you're going to do. You're going to put on your best face. But imagine doing that after having spent a week in the Everglades, walking around through the bog, camping, surviving for your life, and having no deodorant to show for it. No matter how much you dress yourself up, no matter how good of a haircut you get, and no matter if you emptied France of every ounce of perfume and toiletries that they had, would you be able to cover up the stink that clung to you? That is what all of that window dressing is like. God sees past it. He can smell you for what you are. And no matter how much window dressing, no matter how much work you put into covering it up, God knows who you are. Listen to the book of Amos, chapter 5, verses 20 and 24. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light, and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts. I can't stand the stench of your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings, your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Those, those are meant to be sweet aromas that come up to God. When, when those were first set into place in the law, they were sweet aromas that came up to God. He would smell them and he would look favorably upon them. And he says, they stink to me now. You're trying to cover up all of your evil deeds by thinking that you can burn some fat on a grill and that when that comes up to me, when that comes up to me, all I smell is your hypocrisy. You can't cover it up. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. The agitators want to make the best showing they can. They want to make it seem like they love the law of God. I want to come before God and say, God, you, you know how much we love your law? You know how much we revere your law? Look, we're even making the Gentiles keep your law. That's how much we love it. That's how much we care for it. That's how much we respect it. We are making them do the law. And so you can see how much more we love the law than, let's say, Paul. Meanwhile, Paul notes this. Even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. They love the law so much, they would make a great appearance of it in you. They would talk about how much they love the law in your flesh, but they can't keep the law. They can't do the things that the law requires them to do. Paul says, all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them in Galatians 3.10. Listen, that, that means that if you fail in one part of the law, you are therefore a lawbreaker. And Paul certainly does not think that these agitators have failed in simply one part of the law. They continuously fail in the law. They continuously fail to understand not only what the law is calling them to do, but what they need to do to do it. They continually fail. And so what they're trying to do, even in their failure, and Paul in Galatians 3.10 knows that the agitators know that they fail the law. They are trying to cover up their failure of the law by saying how much they love it through making the Galatians themselves be circumcised. See how much we love your law, Lord. But God smells their failure. He knows of their own treachery and the evil that lies in their hearts. 
Friend, don't just think that this is true of people back then. He knows your treachery as well. And all of your evil things, all your evil thoughts that you keep to yourself, he knows them, he sees them, he feels them, he understands them. There is no darkness to God. There is only light. He sees all things. He knows all things. He not only knows those evil things that you think, he knows all the evil things that you do. Every idle word, every grumbling and complaining idea that passes through your mind and passes out your lips, every piece of gossip that you pass along, everything that you do wrong in this life, he knows of. You cannot think that you are lovely before God's eyes. So what is Paul's solution? In verse 14, Paul says this, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I won't boast in my flesh. I won't boast in the things that I do. I won't boast in who I am. The continual passing back and forth between the flesh and the spirit and the flesh and the cross within the book of Galatians emphasizes that which is inherent in us, that which is what is part of us, our character, our nature, the things that we do versus what God has done for us versus that which is something we might call alien like an illegal alien who comes into our country from outside our country, or a history channel type alien who comes in from outer space in groovy little spaceships, right? So those are aliens. They are external to us. They are not part of us. This is what Paul is boasting. He's saying, I'm not going to boast in anything that's inherent in me because I'm not lovely. I'm not good. I'm not kind. I'm not enough to make God want me. Instead, I will boast in that which is alien to me. I will boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. I will boast in what he has done. Listen to verse 15. Paul, who will not boast in himself, goes on to say, Neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision. He says circumcision is, is not the actual deal. You don't, just because the Jews don't get to boast in keeping the law by circumcision, you don't get to boast in not keeping the law. You don't get to boast in your freedom. You don't get to boast in what you don't do. It doesn't matter what you do, and it doesn't matter what you don't do. It doesn't matter if you go out and get circumcised. It doesn't matter if you stay uncircumcised. None of that matters, because all of that is simply a reference to the things you do. You don't get to come to God and say, God, look at all this wonderful stuff I did. Or you don't get to come to God and say, look at all the stuff that I have kept myself from. Paul says, none of that matters. It's not anything to do with what you do, but what is it then, Paul? If it's not circumcision, it's not uncircumcision, he says, the only thing that counts is a new creation. The, the thing that you can't do, the thing that you cannot not do, you can't keep yourself from being created any more than you can make yourself. It is totally alien to you. It's something that God does for you, something that he provides to you. Christianity talks about this in a number of different ways. New creation, new birth, resurrection. It is something that is done as a miracle outside of you. If you've come to Christianity because you want a little bit of religion, you think that it's, it's helpful for you, you would like it to bond your family together, you would like your kids to grow up with some sort of moral framework, you, you would like to have a little bit of moral framework of your own, you think that you could use some of this, maybe some education in, in Christianity and religious things, maybe you want some respectability, your boss is Christian, you want to know more about it, maybe there's all kinds of reasons you might come here to think that you can dress yourself up, you can turn over a new leaf, you can make yourself right again. Friend, let me tell you, Christianity has absolutely nothing for you. Nothing. 
we, we have no new leaves here. We have no new chances. This isn't, this isn't try and try and try again like you're a train chugging up a hill. This is you'll never make it and God must do it for you. Some people want to come in and they want to ask, what do I need to do? What do I need to do? How, how do I make this happen? There's a man that Jesus talked to once that talked like this. John writes in John chapter 3, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. It's a nice introduction. Jesus has none of it. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What he means by that is not just witness the kingdom of God. He can't be in the kingdom of God. He can't experience the kingdom of God. Unless you're born again, you don't get it. And Nicodemus asked the right question. Nicodemus isn't stupid. He's a ruler in Israel. He asked the question, How am I supposed to do that? Do you know what you're asking, Jesus? You're not asking me to sort of try harder. You're not asking me to do it all over again. You're, you're saying that I need something completely from outside. Nicodemus says to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Can, can I do something to make this happen? Jesus says, no. That's the point. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which you do on your own is nothing but flesh. But the one who is born of the Spirit is born of the Spirit. See, it's got to come from outside of you. It's apprehended by faith. You trust in what the Lord has done. You cannot make yourself a new creation. The dead cannot raise themselves. What you need is what comes from outside of you. You need God to act on your behalf, and the good news of the gospel is he has done that. Christ has died for your sins. He was buried and he was resurrected on the third day, according to the scriptures, so that you might be justified in him. Place your trust in him and realize that all you need is not anything inherent in you, but everything inherent in him. You are not lovely in the sight of God. But you can be. Galatians 3.27 For as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ. In verse 28, that's why he says, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? Are you now different than you were? Well, that, that's kind of what he means, but he means this. You're not you. God looks at you and he doesn't see you. You have put on Christ. He does see something lovely. He sees his son, the only lovely one, the only one that is worthy of God's affection. So what has God done? He has provided his son for sinful people so that he can look at them in his son and think that they are lovely and think that he desires them and think that he wants to be with them so that he might be their God and he, they might be his people. Luke 3.22, the Holy Spirit descends upon Christ in bodily form like a dove and a voice comes from heaven at his baptism. You are my beloved son and you I am well pleased. And if you are in Christ, 
by faith and trust in him, you will be lovely in the sight of God because you will be like his beloved son. Friends, this is the gospel. This is nothing short of all of the gospel. You cannot do anything good on your own that will earn you justification before God. Whether that is circumcision from the law or whether that is any of a number of things you want to make up about how to be a good person, none of it matters before God because he can smell through you to your sin. And he will never justify you in that. But Christ has stepped in between God and you. And while God was ready to pour out his wrath upon you, Jesus takes the wrath of God according to the plan of God so that you might not bear yourself under the wrath. And in taking the wrath from you, he has provided you with shelter so that he might provide for you grace and goodness and he might make you, as he made all things at the beginning of time, new again. That is the gospel. The gospel is Jesus Christ came to take the wrath of God for you to remake those who trust in him in his image. So trust in him. That goes for everyone in here today. It's not something that you did before. It's something that you do today. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't think, don't think that you are lovely in God's eyes. But secondly, don't pretend then to be lovely in the world's eyes either. Once we understand what the gospel is, that we are not lovely in God's eyes, but Christ has provided a way for God's favor to be shown to us, there is a tendency to want to manipulate and to change the gospel so that it is more palatable to the world, to make it lovelier in the eyes of the world so that we might be lovelier in the sight of the world. At the very beginning of this, I want to make clear that what I'm not saying is that you aren't lovely to the world and therefore you have no reason to treat them lovely, okay? So that you can ignore all the fruit of the spirit talk that we've had and you can just go out and be rude and mean and jerk-faced to people simply because you know that they're not going to like you anyways. That's not the case. You still need to do the fruit of the spirit. You still need to walk in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all those good things. You need to do those things, but that doesn't mean that the world will ever actually find you lovely. So long as you hold on to the cross, so long as you hold on to Jesus, so long as you do the things that God has called you to do and hold the gospel out for what it is, the world will not find you lovely. The agitators were part of this. They were not trying to simply please God, not trying to make themselves right before God. They were also trying to make themselves right before men. Notice what he says back up in verse 12. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Why are they trying to miss out on the persecution? Why does Paul know that this is what they're trying to do? Because this is what Paul did. See, Stephen was an early deacon and in chapter six of the book of Acts, he gets a little bit of a a heightened look And he is preaching and teaching and and he's doing with all wisdom and it's starting to tee off some people. And so in chapter 6, we read this. The Jews then, certain Jews, secretly instigated men who said, We heard this Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up all the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. 
For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. You hear the problem there. Stephen's speaking against the law. Stephen's speaking against our customs. He's speaking against us. And, and this whole Jesus sect is doing the same thing. And so Stephen has sort of an impromptu trial, and he gives a very long speech in Acts chapter 7, a long sermon detailing all of the falsehoods and the errors of what they're claiming, but also how they're acting just like all of their fathers did before them. It doesn't end up sitting well. The end of chapter 7 we read that the Jews cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears from his preaching and rushed together at him. They cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And Saul approved of his execution. They knew, Paul knew, of the thing that they were doing. Because when you, when you preach the gospel of Christ, which says that you don't need to do anything, but you need to trust that Christ has done it for you, he knows where that leads. He knows where that leads because he's done it before. They were complaining about now the customs are going to be gone and the law is going to be ruined. And that's why they're, they're avoiding it so that they can not just stand before God and say, God, your law is so beautiful and righteous, but they can stand before men and say, no, no, we're not like those other Jesus followers. We're not trying to take down the customs of the Jews. We're not trying to take down the law, but we're actually upholding them. You see, we're, we're making the circumcision happen in the Gentiles. We're, we're making them do that. We're, we're avoiding the persecution because we're giving them what they want. They are changing and manipulating the gospel so that it will be more glorious, so that it would be more legitimate in the eyes of the world. Friends, we just can't do this. Paul writes at the very beginning of the book of Galatians, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel that is a different form of the gospel. It's not actually another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. They were taking the gospel that was for the Jews, which allowed circumcision. The Jews were circumcised. On the eighth day, it's fine, Paul says, that they're circumcised. Circumcision, uncircumcision, it doesn't count for anything. It's fine that they're circumcised, so long as they don't think that it means anything about their justification. But when they bring it to you and they tell you that you have to be circumcised, now, in order to make men happy, now, in order to think that they have a standing before God outside of Christ, they come and they proclaim that you need to be circumcised. And Paul says they're just doing this to please men. Paul writes in Galatians 1.10, just after that, about his own motives. He says, am I seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. You cannot please men and be a servant of Christ. You will only lead to changing the gospel, to manipulating the gospel into something that it isn't. Paul says at the very end of this passage, let no one cause me trouble for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. He carried on his body the scars from the stones smacking his head and the whips ripping open his back from all of the beatings that he took and the shipwrecks that he faced, all the troubles and the tribulations that he took, he bared on his body the evidences of persecution for the cross of Christ. Don't come to Paul telling him that he needs to change the gospel in order to make it appealing to man. We simply cannot do that. We can't change the gospel so that it appeals to individual and personal importance. Pastors get up and they say silly things like, 
If you were the only one in the history of the world to ever believe God would have acted the same way, he would have saved you. Friend, that's a lie. He wouldn't have. You know how I know it? He didn't do that. If God had wanted to do that, he would have done that. But he didn't do that. To appeal to someone on their own individual importance lessens the impact of the gospel. Christ came to richly dwell on the earth to redeem people from every tribe and tongue and nation and language. We can't appeal and change the gospel to handle cultural shifts. Recently, the dean of St. Paul's Church in London, Dr. David Eisen, said that because of the nature of the LBGTQ controversies that are going on in England and, and same things that are happening here, he says that the Church of England needs to change their stance because we have got to come to terms, as his words, quote, we have got to come to terms with the reality of the world we're in and we're not doing that. That is why we're becoming disconnected from society. No, we're disconnected from society because we believe the gospel. If you believe the gospel, you will always be an affront to society. The fact is, the gospel was so perverted that they weren't a stench to society. That's the actual thing. That's the problem. Is that England, the UK, and America has so lost track of what the gospel is calling people to that it looks so much like the culture that they, weren't indis- they were indistinguishable from the culture. That was the problem. The fact that we are now distinguishable from the culture means that we're getting back on the right track. Because we always, always will be a stench in the nostrils of the culture. We can't move against that. We cannot change the gospel to appeal to the right side of history. To say you want to be on the right side of history, don't you? People have said this. Long ago, John the Revelator wrote wrote this. In Revelation 13.4. And the world worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? Do you hear what they're saying? Who wants to be on the right side of history? You worship the beast. Perhaps people should read to the end of that book. Why do you think the Romans crucified people? It wasn't just to kill them. There are plenty of ways to kill them that involved much less labor, like a sword to the throat. But instead, they, they took the time to get out the, the cross and to get out all the nails and to pound them through and to hoist it up. They, they had to do all of this extra work. They would leave them up there for days and then they would have to take them down. It was a whole bunch of extra work. Why did the Romans do that? The whole purpose of crucifixion was not just to kill, but to send a message. It was so that people who would look at them would think, about this naked man hanging on a cross, wasting away, drowning in his own blood, they would look at him and say, friend, what did you think you were doing? What did you think was going to be the end of your little insurrection against Rome? See, the Romans didn't just kill everybody who did something bad, but the people who specifically went against the Roman kingdom, the Roman empire, those who were insurrectionists who tried to overthrow Rome, that is who they would crucify. Why did you think you could stand against Rome? Look at how weak and how frail you are. You can't even breathe. It was meant to imply mockery and derision. And Paul turns around and says, I am crucified to the world, or the world is crucified to me. Paul looks at the world and he says, I don't get it. 
I don't get why you stand against the Lord of glory. I I don't get why you stand against the gospel of God. I I don't understand why in your foolishness you think you can get away with what you're doing because you can't. And he says, the world is crucified to me and I to the world. The world is always going to look at Paul. It's always going to look at Paul as though he is the fool of fools, as though he is insane for what he does. It's always going to be that way. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. He says, we preach something that is inherently stupid to them. But for those who believe, those whom God has chosen to wake up to the message, it is the power of salvation, and it makes all the sense in the world. You see, by making, by making the gospel more palatable to the world, we are forgetting that it is God who saves in the first place. And all we are doing is luring people into works righteousness and luring them into a legalism and luring them into an idea that they are lovely before God. We are not to do that. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 14 through 16, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. So this is the, the picture of, of a Roman governor conquering a land and then leading people through Rome, through the streets of Rome. They'd have parades. And he says, the fragrance of our parade is going up to everybody. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. We get a very strong reaction from everybody. Our stink gives a very unique reaction for everybody. He says, to one... There's a fragrance from death to death. They look at us, they smell the fragrance, and what they smell is rot. It is nothing but death to them. It is idiocy. It is foolishness. But to the other, a fragrance from life to life. That they smell it, and they smell nothing but the goodness of the truth of God in Christ. Why change the gospel to appeal to the flesh when the flesh cannot save If we rely on God to act and save us, then we rely on God to act and save us. And we rely on the word that he has given to us and the gospel that he has given to us to take it to the world. We don't need to change the gospel. Again, none of this means that we have to be blunt to the point of just absolute meanness. We are to be kind, but the gospel cannot change. The gospel cannot be manipulated You cannot twist people's arms and and change it so that they might be more prone to accepting it. That's no longer the gospel. 
So go out and preach the gospel. Trust the gospel. Work through the gospel. If you know the gospel, you know and have access to everything that God would ever want to offer to you. If you understand these things, if you live by this rule, Paul says in verse 16, there is mercy and peace for you. There's mercy from God. If you trust in the work of Christ, God is merciful to you. He will forgive your sins. He will make you new again. He will not give you what you deserve, but he will give you something much, much better. He will give you all of the riches of the glorious inheritance of the saints. He will pour upon you all of the richest blessings, more than you could ever understand, more than you could ever believe in or trust in, more than your brain can possibly imagine. God is willing and able to pour all of these things out on you, to give you even his own spirit, to make you his own child. You are pleasing to God in Christ. You're part of the blessing to Abraham. This is what he he means when he says, the Israel of God and upon the Israel of God. That's not a separate group. That's the same group. Those who follow this rule are the Israel of God. They are the children of Abraham. That's what the parable of Hagar and Sarah is about. The real children of Abraham are children of the promise, not children of the flesh. If you have been born to God by his promise, by his working a miracle in you, like he did when he made Isaac out of nothing, well then, You are a child of Abraham, and you are part of the Israel of God. You are a son, you're an heir, you're forgiven, you're remade, you're delivered from the present evil age, you're given the Spirit, and you have the full mercy of God in you, and you have peace in the world. While the world rages, plots in vain against God, we are assured of our victory and our good before God. They will gnash their teeth at God and his people, but we will entrust ourselves to be vindicated in the end. Friend, believe and trust in the gospel. Do not think any higher of yourself than you ought, but in humility and in lowliness, come and plead with God on, in the name of Jesus Christ that you might be forgiven. Isaiah 55 says this, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. You have nothing to offer God but come to him and he will give you everything through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. That is the gospel. Trust in that. That is why Paul wrote the book of Galatians. That's why the New Testament exists. That's why God has started all of history that you might know Jesus Christ and the redemption in his blood. Let's pray. Father God, you are kind to us in so many ways not the least of which is the fact that you have revealed yourself to us and you have given us Jesus Christ, our Lord, to die for our sins, that we might be remade in your image, that we might be acceptable to you and be forgiven for all that we have done wrong, made new. We are no longer what we once were. Father, continue your work in us. Give us faith to see the gospel. Give us hearts to trust in the gospel that we might not stagger to the left or to the right, that we might not fall by the wayside, but as Jesus himself has instructed us, we might stay on the narrow path that leads to life. For you alone are life. So we pray, Father, that our lives will be glorifying to you, that in the gospel we will show the vast worthiness, not of ourselves before the world, not of ourselves before you, but we will only boast in the cross of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.